Welcome to Inside the NCAA. I am Jack Ford. Periodically, we do exactly what the title suggests. We take you inside the NCAA to give you a better understanding of some of the practices and the procedures, the processes, and especially the people involved in the NCAA. We want to do that today with a focus on the infractions process because there have been some significant changes that have taken place recently. And we feel it's important for people to understand all of that. And to help us understand all that, we're delighted to be joined by Naima Stevenson-Starks, who is now has spent a good deal of time at the NCAA and now functions as the Vice President of Hearing Operations. Naima, always nice to see you. Good to see you as well, Jack. Thanks for having me. Delighted to talk with you. So let, let's frame our conversation by giving people an, a, a better understanding of the process. Because I found in the past in, in talking with folks, even folks involved in NCAA membership institutions, that there's not always a complete understanding of, of how the infractions process works. So let's start off with the, the bigger question, which is how did it come about and where do the rules and regulations come from? Great. Um, I do agree that oftentimes folks don't understand exactly what the whole process is. You hear about things in the news, particularly for the public, um, but it doesn't really explain, not through lack of trying on our part, but it doesn't really explain how, how the system really operates. So I like to start by saying the rules begin and end um, with our member institutions. So it's not those people in Indianapolis uh, coming up with um, how um, NCA member schools govern themselves. It really is the member institutions themselves. And once there is um, some indication that perhaps an institution may not be comporting with those rules that they themselves adopted, then the only part of the process that really resides in the national office is our enforcement staff. Um, so those are folks who go out and investigate um, alleged wrongdoing of um, member institutions and those connected with member institutions. And then they bring allegations and those allegations are then adjudicated, determined, decided whether or not the rules were actually violated and what penalty should be assessed by our Committee on Infractions. And that group, which you're well acquainted with, is primarily comprised of people from NCA member schools, so schools, conferences, and then interestingly, because there's been a lot of um, attention on independence and public members um, in the system that we'll talk about a little later, um, but in our system, in the peer review process, part of the infractions process, we have always had, um, at least as long as I can remember, public members. Um, so that voice, um, separate and apart from those who are connected from member schools, is infused into the peer review process, but it's mostly um, athletic directors, conference commissioners, faculty athletic reps, compliance folks, um, and those who are tethered to institutions who are ultimately deciding whether or not um, NCA rules have been broken and what penalties should be assessed. So that's think, the first level. Yeah, and I think the important thing is, as you've mentioned, these are rules that have been created by the members, for the members, and enforced by the members. You know, I, I, I find oftentimes when I talk to people about it, they think there's some person in Indianapolis with a big gavel that sits there and says, bang, this is what we're going to do here. 
Uh, I had, as you mentioned, the opportunity to be a, a public member for a number of years um, on the Infractions Committee, and I, I've talked about this in, in the past. And you know, I found it to be a very thoughtful, considerate process where the members truly anguished over the notion of, all right, is there something that went wrong here, and how do we resolve it? within yeah. the rules established by the members. I think that's important for, for people to know. What about the idea, sometimes you'll hear people say, once a decision comes down, well, you know, that, that, it's the NCA saying this, there's no appeals, there's no, no way to get around to this. Um, what, what's the reality? So the reality is there is a infractions appeals committee that's sole job is to review decisions of the Committee on Infractions if an institution or someone involved in that underlying infractions case wants to appeal a portion of that case, whether the Committee on Infractions perhaps um, erred in some way in making its determination that there was a violation or if their judgment about the penalty that would be appropriate for that violation um, a party, um, a party being an involved um, coach or athletic administrator or an institution felt was um, unfair in some way, then they have the opportunity to appeal to the infractions appeals committee and that body is comprised similarly, although smaller as the Committee on Infractions of people, mostly from member institutions, but they're also public members um, on that body as well. So there's clearly a fresh set of eyes taking a look at the facts and circumstances here uh, to determine whether it, 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 this is indeed playing out the way the membership and the membership rules had provided, correct? It is a check on the system. Um, so, and, and once it gets to that point, though, then it is kind of the final determination and, and whatever, you know, results from the appellate um, decision is what will um, guide that institution and the membership more broadly related to the underlying issues that were in that infractions case. Let me talk a little bit of, about your position now, because it's a fairly new position. Okay. It's created. It is. And, and explain what the position entails, and then that'll lead us into a conversation about some of the changes that have taken place fairly recently. So let's start with, with your position. How did it come about, and, and what's the function? So it came about in part um, because of what we're going to get to in a second, um, some of the recommendations from the Commission on College Basketball and what that was going to lead to in terms of having to support um, an additional part of the infractions process. Um, but the position, in my view, was pretty needed for a long time um, because we have, as we've described, an infractions process that begins with investigation. Um, and we have always had the staff within the national office that kind of is responsible for that function. Um, and that is our enforcement staff. And we have a vice president of that area um, within the national office. But we never really had anybody at the executive level that was over the second part of the process. Yes, we have committees that are making those decisions, but we also have staff that support those committees um, as they do their work because the committees are comprised of volunteers, which is another um, thing that gets a little left out of the narrative. So these folks have taken up the mantle to help um, ensure 
um, fairness and accountability in college athletics on top of their day jobs. <laughs> um, so they need a staff to support um, that work um, and, and help make sure that they're getting all the information that they need to, you know, exercise their um, responsibility to um, adjudicate um, these infractions cases. So now this position, my position, um, I work with an incredible staff of 12 folks um, within the national office, um, eight of which support the Committee on Infractions, because as we described, that's a bigger body. There's up to 24 Committee um, on Infractions members at any particular time. Um, and that staff of eight um, support the work of that group, help put on um, the hearings, provide um, the framework for training, um, et cetera. So they have a really important job within the association um, because they serve as the clerk of the court, um, for lack of a better analogy, um, that staff does. And then we have a staff of three that support the Infractions Appeals Committee because as we talked about, that body is smaller. There's five of them also comprised of volunteers who have day jobs, you know, as, as one is a president of a university, um, you know, one who um, is an attorney in private practice, um, and then you've got various athletic administrators. So they need support as well to do the work of the appellate function, but also um, carry out their responsibilities. So I have a staff of 12 total, and we now comprise hearing operations. Um, one of the real tall orders, though, is that we have to create a kind of a cohesive unit, but also keep the appropriate separation so that there's no um, crossing of the lines with respect to anything case-specific, um, since those two groups serve very different functions in the process. Um, so both of those staffs report to me, but in our area, um, which now is hearing operations, there's a physical wall um, between the Office of the Committee on Infractions and the um, Infractions Appeals Committee staff so that there's not that cross-pollination. But at a high level, we do need to make sure we're operating um, in kind of a consistent fashion connected to the um, both the legislation that governs the infractions process, um, but also the, the rules and the procedures that um, also govern the process. You, you mentioned the staff, and let me offer up an unsolicited compliment here to <laughs> staff. And again, it dispels a myth that I've heard out there where people have said, well, somebody is sitting in Indianapolis and they're saying, let's go get somebody. We need to go after these people. And I've said this before, and it's worth saying again, that in all the cases that I handled when I was serving in that capacity, as you mentioned, we were all volunteers, yeah. um, never had a single instance where a staff person said, this is what I think should happen here. It is simply, here are the facts, here are the rules. If you make findings, here are the parameters of what you can look at for resolutions, and you take it and do what you think is right. And I think it's important, and you see that. I saw it, but part of our conversations here inside the NCAA is let people, other people understand how it works. And, and they were, were um, religious about not allowing personal opinions it, it, it be introduced in any fashion into, into the considerations here. And I think that's a, an important fact for people to keep in mind. You're absolutely right, Jack. That's um, essential to our function as staff supporting 
the bodies that ultimately are responsible for these really important high impact decisions for you know our membership it is not the job of the staff to infuse any um substantive um issues within the decision making process it is our job to support and help with the systems and you know make sure that they have um, the committee members have all of the information that they could possibly need um, that was contained within a record of a particular case to you know make fair and equitable conclusions with respect to that to that um, that particular infractions matter right i mentioned in the inter introduction that one of the things we like to focus on are changes in the process yep. keep people up to date on changes and um, we had, and you mentioned briefly, the, the, the commission that was chaired by um, Condoleezza Rice and was composed of, in addition to her, obviously, a number of very respected individuals from very different walks of life with different, different approaches, I would suspect, to the world of intercollegiate athletics. And they came out with a number of, of recommendations that are in the process um, of, of being promulgated. One of them had to do with the idea of the infractions process. Um, yep. Give us a little bit of an overview, if you will, what the recommendations were coming out of the commission's work and how that is now manifesting itself in the NCAA. Yeah, so great question. And, you know, really, this is the area that is probably of um, keen interest um, for our membership because anything new um, results in a little bit of uncertainty as to how it's all going to play itself out. Um, but as I mentioned, part of the reason this role was really created is because we did have that recommendation um, from the Commission on College Basketball that perhaps in addition to our peer review process, we should have a process where they're um, completely independent decision makers. So the people who are sitting in judgment of these infractions matters are not necessarily anyone tethered to a um, NCA member school, but are a, basically a body of full public members similar to the role that you served um, um, on the Committee on Infractions. Um, and I think that um, recommendation, if I had to guess, was fueled in part by this perception that our membership in some instances is not necessarily holding um, other member institutions as accountable as those on the commission or the public might think is appropriate, right? Um, as having even before this, this role, when I was in um, our legal counsel office for the NCAA, I supported in a legal capacity the infractions process and I, um, really do feel that our peer review process is perfectly um, positioned to um, adjudicate the overwhelming majority of cases. And our, as you know, our Committee on Infractions is well situated um, to look and adjudicate fairly, you know, the cases that come before it. But we've seen over the last couple years, um, very um, high stakes cases get increasingly adversarial. Um, there's a lot of um, nuances and intersection with perhaps legal um, um, uh, processes that are also playing out simultaneously. And it has just kind of stretched, I think, 
the um, peer review process that is predicated on a self-governing, self-regulating membership that really cooperates in truth finding, um, you know, figuring out what happened here. You know, there's this allegation of, um, of alleged wrongdoing or something that doesn't comport with our um, rules and, and the way the membership wants um, college athletics to be governed. Let's find out what happens here. And then there's this kind of collaborative approach that works really well for the peer review model. Some of the cases that we've seen over the last several years don't really fit neatly into that box because they have gotten a little bit more adversarial. They have gotten, you know, where there's thousands and thousands of pages, you know, that these volunteer committee members have to review in order to come to conclusion on the case. So part of what the commission recommended is that there be this independent body that looks at a certain subset of infractions cases, um, those that are more complex, um, that might be more adversarial. And there's three ways that those cases can get from the peer review process to this independent process. And that is by a recommendation um, for a request to the independent process from an institution. I think we can probably agree that most institutions wouldn't raise their hand um, to say, take me into this unknown, untested process. Um, so we probably won't see that for a little bit. Um, the other way is that the enforcement staff, you know, they could start their investigation or look into some matters and for whatever reason determine that perhaps this case wouldn't be appropriate for our normal peer review process, but this independent process that's got a little bit of different contours to it might be the appropriate route. And then the third way is that the Committee on Infractions can get a case, they can review it and say, you know what, we think that this case might be better suited for a number of reasons for this independent structure. And then we have what's called the Independent Resolution Panel that will basically sit in the same seat that the Committee on Infractions sits in in the peer review side. It's 15 individuals who are completely untethered um, from any member institutions. We've got a former Supreme Court justice in, from the state of North Carolina. We've got folks who are arbitrators before the Court of Arbitration of Sport. Um, so they deal in Olympic related matters, but not necessarily anything NCAA related. Um, we've got folks in private business. We've got a former um, athletic director from a member institution who has long since retired. Um, she's probably our only person um, who has kind of that athletics um, background. Everyone else, we do have a couple of former student athletes, one former Olympic athlete um, who is on the panel. But those folks will now sit in the same seat that the Committee on Infractions sits in, in the peer review side, and we will support that role as well, um, but a little bit more limited and nuanced um, since the, the independent folks really are um, outside of the NCA governance process. Answer this question for me. What would happen, as you mentioned, you described the, mm -hmm. the, essentially the three bases for moving it to within this panel, this group. Yep. Which, as you said, is is a, a group. You'd be hard pressed, I think, anybody from the outside looking in 
and looking at this group saying, this is not a, a, a group of impartial, talented and thoughtful people to make decisions yep. here. You know, it's, it's, there's an old expression about not only must justice be done, but justice must see, be seen to be done, which I think is important in this process here. But suppose you're a member institution and you say, you say um, I don't wanna be part of, I don't wanna go on this route. I don't wanna be part yep. of the process this way. As yep. you said, you can choose to, you can as an institution say, hey, you can raise your hand and say, you take can. me, take me. I, do, I like this process for this circumstance, I wanna go here. But suppose there's a recommendation coming from one of the other directions and the member institution says, I'm okay with the other process here. How does that work? Great question. Um, so we have the infractions referral committee. So let me back up for a moment. There's four components to this new independent structure. There's the independent account, and it's a little bit of alphabet soup, so please <laughs> forgive me with all of our acronyms, but the, the body that sits on top of the independent structure is called the Independent Accountability Oversight Committee, and that committee is comprised of three of our newly appointed, um, not so new anymore, but um, three of our independent members to the Board of Governors, which is the NCA's highest committee. Um, so Grant Hill, Dennis McDonough, and Vivek Murphy are on the oversight committee for the independent structure in total. And then they are joined by the chair and vice chair of the Division I Board of Directors. So the five of them sit on top of the process. They don't deal with anything case specific but all of the contours of the process as is directed um, by the legislation, this group is kind of responsible for the policy making um, for this that would govern this independent structure. So under them is the infractions referral committee and that gets to your question. Um, the infractions referral committee is comprised of five individuals as well. We have one representative from the committee on infractions one representative from the Infractions Appeals Committee, one representative from this newly appointed independent resolution panel, the adjudicators um, in this independent structure. And that person serves as the chair. Um, his name is Jeff Benz um, and he's an arbitrator. He does a lot of work before the Court of Arbitration of Sport. And then the other two spots are filled by the chair and the vice chair of the Division I Council. Currently, that's Grace Calhoun from Penn, um, the athletic director from um, Penn, and then John Steinbrecher, um, the commissioner of the MAC conference. So the five of them are very important in this independent structure. To your question, this body takes the request from referral that might come from either the institution, the enforcement staff, or the committee on infractions, and then all of the parties known to the case at the time have the opportunity to respond to that request. So just using for an example, as you did, if the institution somehow requests referral, then any coach or administrator that's known to be impacted, they can respond to that request for referral as would the enforcement staff and the Committee on Infractions. And this infractions referral committee would then take all of that information and based on factors, not exclusively, but factors that are um, identified in the legislation, 
they would determine whether or not the, this is an appropriate case to be referred or not. But they would look at all of the parties' positions on whether referral is appropriate um, and make the determination whether the case should be referred. Let me ask you sort of a wrap-up question here, if we can, uh, because yep. you've explained very well the, the changes here, the process, who's populating these various um, yep. these various roles here, and what we've looked for, what the NCAA, I should say, has looked for in terms of, of putting these people in these positions. Um, with, without getting into, because we don't want to get into any specific cases, because those are all done in a, in a fairly confidential fashion. But what are you seeing in terms of how the process is starting to roll out and how it's starting to work? Yeah, so great question. And there is one slight distinction between the independent process and the peer review process. And it goes to your point about the, the confidential nature. Um, all of the cases are really cloaked by confidentiality. And that was one of the rules that the membership put in place as people are going through infractions processes. They need to be kept confidential until a decision comes out from the membership body in the case of the peer review process or this independent resolution panel. But in our, in the independent structure, the one um, nuance to that um, is that the when that infractions referral committee makes a decision to accept a case into the independent structure, there is public disclosure of, of, that, of that decision point. Um, so we do have one case currently in the independent structure that was publicly announced essentially um, back in early March. Um, but the system as a whole has been working very well um for um the way that it was designed um you know um to work um based on the recommendation initially from the commission on college basketball but then our membership um a working group um that was comprised of people from member institutions took that recommendation and put the meat to it um, put the meat to the bones how was the system contemplated to, to supposed to work um, and then the governance structure in Division One, because this is only a function within Division One. This is not um, Divisions Two and Divisions Three do not have this independent structure. Right. I'm so glad you division, mentioned that because I was I was going to ask you that question about who falls under the 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 aegis of these changes. Yeah. So it is only a um, creature of Division One right now, um, and the Division One Board of Directors ultimately had to approve the legislation that authorized this um, independent structure to be created, um, which they did back in 18, I believe. Um, so it didn't become effective, um, even though it was approved. The system went into effect August 1 of 19. So from also we're not even a full year into, into the process being up and running um, and cases being able to be funneled through the process. Um, but as I mentioned, we do have one case that has been publicly acknowledged as being accepted into the system. And that now the confidentiality that applies to the peer review would also apply um, to that case, and we won't hear anything about that case until a decision has been rendered 
um, by the independent resolution panel. So it's working well, um, <laughs> um, um, at least so far. Right. Uh, last question for you, because I, th I think we have touched on just about all of the significant aspects of, of, of these changes in the process. What's a, a message you would offer up then from your position to the members, member institutions and, and the, the people who are affiliated with the member institutions about these changes and what they should briefly, the message that they should know about it? Well, I think it's important to, one, know that the rules and the legislation and the tools, um, a better way of saying it as well, are all the same with respect to the peer review process and the independent process. Um, the rules that you will be adjudicated against as you know, member schools and those connected with member schools are the same. There's not this different um, framework um, for the independent structure. What is different is that the independent um, um, resolution panel, the decision makers, the adjudicators are not people connected to member schools. Um, instead of interacting with the enforcement staff, as we've talked about, um, this was the one area that I didn't focus on. The one other component of the independent structure is the complex case unit. So instead of interacting with the enforcement staff and the investigative part of an infractions case, if you are in the independent structure, you will be interfacing with entities that are not connected um, to the um, NCA enforcement staff. So it would be um, independent investigative firms and then independent advocates, law firms essentially will be um, presenting the case on behalf of whatever the investigation yielded to the independent resolution panel. So that is also a difference. You're not gonna be interfacing um, with individuals from within the NCA enforcement staff for the investigative stage. All right, well, um, a, a lot going on, um, all um, designed to make the process um, in many ways more efficient, more effective, um, more all-encompassing, and certainly more fair, which has always yep. been, you know, fairness has always been the, the cornerstone of any adjudicative process. And, and yep. we're seeing that all taking place with regard to what you're doing and the other folks there. Uh, so Naima Stevenson-Starks, our Vice President, the NCA Vice mm -hmm. President of Hearing Operations. Naima, thanks so much for spending some time. You, you really were very helpful in explaining all of these changes and what they really mean to folks. And, and I'm sure uh, as a consequence, there are members and people affiliated out there saying, okay, now I get it. I think I, I have a better understanding of all of this. Mm -hmm. So I um, do want to thank you for spending some time and helping us better understand this. You, you take care and you be well. Okay, you do the same. All right, that does it then for this edition of Inside the NCAA. I'm Jack Ford. I want to thank you all for joining us and also saying to you all, make sure you stay healthy and stay well.